Rumcasters, and welcome back to another episode of the Rumcast. We, of course, are the podcast that talks about all things rum-related with the people who love and shape it. I'm John Gullah, and with me to co-host the program today, as always, is Will Hookinga. Will, today we have a really great interview for everyone to learn about Mexican rum with Francisco yes. Terrazas from Peranubes. Uh, but before we talk about that, Will, tell me what's going on in your part of the rum world lately. Yeah, well, I'm over here. I'm actually just, I've been noodling, John. I've been noodling on a question that we Ah, got via Instagram. Someone slid right into the DMs, as uh, we always (laughs) encourage people to do. Uh, Mark Wilson reached out with uh, a question that, like, I've I've kind of heard people have similar thoughts um, with this before. Yeah, and so I thought it would be a fun one to discuss on on the program, as you would uh, as as you would like I to threw say that in there on the program. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So I'll I'll just I'll just dive right into Mark's question. So Mark says, as you know, there are numerous rum producers who advertise that they add absolutely nothing to their rum, no sugar no flavors, no additives of any kind. But, and here's where the question gets interesting, but I claim that this is a false statement. By aging rum in wooden containers, they are infusing the rum with the flavor of that particular wood, not Mm. to mention whatever was inside the container before they used it, such as wine, bourbon, etc. Mm -hmm. If they used stainless steel instead, they would end up with true unflavored rum, but they actually want those flavors in there, and that's why they do it. So, that is Mark's question, and I, I'm, I'm going to try to stay in my lane here, and I'm not going to give the uber-scientific answer, but just more how, how I kind of, you know, yeah. my own personal philosophy and, and, and how I handle this in my head. For me, I get where this question is coming from, because when you age any spirit, you know, not just rum, when you put mm-hmm. it into a wooden container... Um, there are interactions that happen between the wood and the spirit. Uh, there are compounds, you know, that get put into the spirit, things like vanillin and things like that. Again, I'm not going to try to get too technical here. I don't want to sound more out of my depth than yeah. I already feel right now. But so I understand the spirit, no pun intended, the spirit of the question. It, it's um, funny because you, you sound a little bit like you're having the birds and the bees conversation with like, <laughs> you're, right. you're like when a wood barrel meets a rum, yeah, young who, one. Who, who, who yeah, who, <laughs> who love, each love other. very much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, so obviously there's, there's something happening to the spirit inside the barrel that changes the nature of the spirit that changes its kind of chemical makeup to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, though, the idea of additives and a label saying no additives, for me, additives imply something beyond what you would expect the thing you are consuming to have, assuming some base level of knowledge of the spirit. Right. So right. when I see an aged rum, it's from the start, I understand that the aging process has happened and that there are things inherent in that process that are going to change what came off of the still, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, the things that happen in that aging process, that's just, that's contained within the package of the word aging, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So an additive to me is something extra beyond that process. That's kind of how I look at it. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, John. 
So I, I'll, I'll follow suit in saying that in no way, shape, or form do I have any right to be like talking about this on a factual basis. So this is, you know, the no fact zone here we're going to do. And this is <laughs> no our opinion. <laughs> no fact zone. But my opinion follows yours. There's a, his question is a, is a good one from a certain perspective, but it's lacking in a context, right? Hmm. And, and And what I mean by that is, as you were describing, there's there's unaged rum and there's aged rum, and we understand aged rum as a process and as a context, right? Yeah, and yeah, we, yeah. we understand that within that context of an aged rum, there is going to be those things that affect the the end product um, right. that are naturally part of that process. Where we want to say additives, when we talk about no additives and transparency with that, what we're talking about is things that we would not expect to be within that context. Sure. So pouring a bunch of sugar in or some other things or glycerin you know, right macerated yeah. fruits or, or whatever it is I, again I'm, I'm actually fine with some of that stuff i just want to know that when it's added what is being added so i know there's a lot of rum rum fans out there who are not okay with that and want their rum to be no additives and i and i enjoy that rum very much for me it's just a question of going back to the idea of his question is the context for his question is Incorrect is the wrong word. I don't mean it in that way. It's just it's lacking in its how it's being shaped. This the question. I, I feel like we could open a whole can of worms here, actually, on, on the whole notion of additives and what are additives. But I feel like that context is very important, and I think right. a lot of what drives um, the the debate and arguments over this is like what like how you define those contexts because you can go from age drum, then you can tie this into. GIs like Barbados rum. So what does Barbados rum mean? What are the expectations of Barbados rum, you know, right. that already exist and what fits within those expectations and what doesn't? Uh, we talked about that with Frank Ward exactly. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I again, this this could turn into its its whole 90-minute podcast of its own. So I don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole, but that's kind of how I look at it. And that's also why I'm not a huge fan of descriptors like dark rum, gold rum, mm-hmm. because to me, those muddy the waters of Oh, of that's your not expectations good for my of, coming up. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> teaser, teaser. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, and again, I'm not saying those products are bad. There's plenty of, of rums that are described like that that I think are good. But yeah. I just think it muddies the waters of consumer expectations and understanding of, of what is going to be in the bottle. When right. I see dark rum, I don't, I don't know if that means it's been aged. I don't know if that means that it's had... Um, you know, caramel coloring added to it or right. spirit caramel or whatever, or I don't know if both of those things have occurred as is often the case. So mm-hmm. for me, it's all about what your expectations are when you see the label and for aged products, to me, it is understood that a transformative process has occurred and that's right. why I'm okay with the idea of those producers labeling their products with no additives, talking about things that sometimes occur outside of that process that brands are not always as forthcoming about. Agree. And what I would say to to Mark is, I I would say, Mark, you're not wrong in one sense in the idea that, yes, there are things that are going into the distillate there that are not from just the distillate. So the wood, wood sugars and other things. And as you mentioned, that if it's finished in a certain type of barrel, some more than right. others, as we've discussed before, give you more of a finish flavor on there. So there are those things. But There's huge degrees is, of, of variance within the right, process. Right. So yeah. I would say while you're not wrong, we would also ask 
podcast that you, you think about the context of that as well and how the context differs between what we would consider to be that aging process in and of itself and what that entails and what is accepted within that to understand the difference when somebody's saying no additives are added to a product versus barrel aging as an additive in and of itself. Yeah. Well, on that note, you I mean you dropped a hint. Uh, thanks, Mark, by the way, for the question. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone else has questions, keep them coming. We love this stuff. But you dropped a hint in there of a rerun that you have picked out to go through uh, a rum that you have chosen to revisit before this episode and, and share how your thoughts and feelings and experiences have changed since the first time you had it. So we're going to do that before we get into the interview with Francisco, but hit me with it. I'm really curious now. All right. So you mentioned, you know, think descriptors like gold rum or dark rum. Well, mm-hmm. this is a gold rum. It's described as a gold rum. I'm going to okay. give you that to start with. Okay. And I will say that the first time that I had this, it didn't stick out to me in any way particularly. It was kind of nothing bad about it, but nothing that really made me go, oh, that is something that is I need to experience again. Right. I don't know if right. that makes sense. Just not but, memorable. Right. Just right. kind of meh. Which is weird because when I came back to it, I had kind of an opposite experience really? with it. So that's that's where I, I like to do reruns where I, I'm showing that there's a real big difference. If I go back to a rum after a few months, and it's exactly the same thing. That's Which not happens. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's why I keep bringing up these rums in our reruns that I find different things in after going back to them. So this is the Monty Musk classic gold Jamaican. Okay, awesome. So kind of the standard aged offering from Money Musk, right? Sure. Yes, it's distilled at the legendary Clarendon Distillery located mm-hmm. on the southern side of Jamaica. It's their midline product. So it's a molasses-based, it's 40% ABV. It's a column and pot blend. Mm-hmm. It's aged for a minimum of 5 years in charred American oak barrels, and it's fairly widely available, I think. I can find it in my region for sure, and it's about $35 for the bottle in okay. my region, so not super expensive, but perhaps in the, in the middle range there. Okay. What I was interested in when I went back to the rum is, as I mentioned, it was kind of just in the middle of things before for me and didn't stick out. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm actually appreciating it for almost that very fact. Really? Which is that it's unassuming in a lot of ways. And the bottle design even is very unassuming. Like it doesn't really stick out a whole mm-hmm. lot on the shelf. But also I think it's a classic bottle design and I actually like that. Just like the name implies, I guess it's classic gold. I really find now that that's an apt name. That classic gold is an okay. apt name. Well, the classic part, I mean, um, <laughs> <laughs> because it represents represents the category of what a classic age Jamaican rum should be. Maybe it's less of should be, but is maybe to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. This is like the baseline that I would come back to. You know, we I think we've talked about that on a previous episode where we say like there's a baseline rum and you come back to that when you A-B test it with something else. Right, right, right. Yeah. It kind of sets, it, it, it sets, yeah, it sets the baseline for your expectations of the, the, the category or whatever. Like sure. this, this baseline rum is a great representation of, you know, X. That's what this is for me. I love the the oak notes on this with the American charred oak. It, it comes through. You mm-hmm. you really get the oak on this and a lot of the spices and the vanilla that you would expect and a little bit of the baking spices are in there. But what I really like about this one, and this is where I'm now separating with the rerum versus the first time, okay. is I'm taking my time with it a little bit more. And what I like about it is you get these waves of flavor from sipping that kind of come back into the palate. So you'll take the initial sip, you'll get hit by the oak and the spice up front. You know, some might be 
people might say, well, it's a little little tiny bit overwhelming to begin with for a sipper. But as you continue to sip slowly and over time, you find that, at least I find, the mid-palate and the finish comes in waves. It takes okay. over and it kind of comes in waves and it makes you want to take that next sip again. And I think that's where this rum, for me, really sticks out. I do wish it was a little higher on the ABV side, but I think that's general for rum geeks like us. You know, I would love to see it at 43 or 46 or 45 but it brings the heat for, for what it is. And for a bottle that's $35, I think it really does a great job. Well, it, it kind of, the way you're describing it kind of reminds me of how I feel about Appleton 8, which is maybe like maybe a little cheaper than that generally. But yeah, just kind of that, that, it's like that old friend you kind of want having, hanging out, hanging around yeah. that uh, is, is easy and comforting. You can lean on it when you're not strong. Exactly. Wait, are we going to get copyright issues for that? (laughs) I hope not. But, you know, it's funny you mentioned Appleton because you had mentioned recently that you actually might like Appleton 8 better than Appleton 12. Yeah, I know. I have heard some disagreements on that <laughs> from a lot of people, but uh, I, I, I again making the distinction that the the eight now is different from what the reserve yeah. used to be. Right. Uh, but right. yeah, I think it's really good. Well, for for me, it's kind of the same here with the Monty Musk line because they have their special reserve, uh, which is above this classic gold. For me, I actually prefer the classic gold. Wow. I don't know what it is exactly, and it would be tough to put my finger on right now, but having tasted the entire lineup in an event Florida Rum Society did pretty recently, the entire lineup is excellent, but the classic gold stuck out to me as the winner. A lot of other people did like the Special Reserve better, and I would say that's probably consistent, like you said, with Appleton 12 versus Appleton 8, but I really enjoy this classic gold, and I think it's a bottle that people are underrating. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's something for people to look into now. On that note, though, I think that we can transition into the interview for this episode. As you mentioned earlier, Francisco yeah. Terrazas from Paranubes, a, a really interesting rum brand out of Mexico, uh, the Oaxaca region, uh, made from fresh cane juice. And, you know, I, I don't want to spoil all the details before we get into it. It's just this whole episode for me, obviously, we talk a lot about Paranubes and the story how how it came to be uh jose luis who is the mm-hmm. distiller behind the brand and also grows a lot of the sugarcane used uh, in its production but we also talk about kind of the whole category of mexican rum and how it's probably a lot bigger than most people realize has more history than most yeah. people realize and francisco really illuminated a lot of that for me personally and like i, I walked away with like some some new new book purchases and all sorts of stuff um but i'm really excited i feel like it's kind of a one of the next in line emerging rum regions that we're going to be seeing a lot of new stuff from and just a whole new chunk of the world to to learn about from a rum perspective so yeah that's what i took away from it and uh obviously we also talk about some exciting new things from paranubes as well and uh yeah so i'm i'm eager for people to hear this one I just love that there's still rum blind spots in the world for even yeah. rum geeks like us. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Like, wow, all of this stuff. We I think we did that last year with our Australia episode. Yep. Where mm-hmm. it was like, wow, there's this, and now there's this. The same thing I'm finding in our interview with the Mexican rum mm-hmm. is like, wow, there's this whole other country of amazing things, and Mexico's a big country, right? And we talk about that a lot and too. And close about, to us yeah, here, you know, yeah. Austra- Australia's the, the other side of the world. Um, right. So so it felt a little more natural. To to know less about it but yeah uh mexico you know it's our it's our neighbor so it yeah it's exciting 
Yeah, it is. Uh, and I just love saying Paranubis. Paranubis. Yep. It's such a good name. And we could talk about the name a little bit. And Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. I love that, too. It's a just beautiful region. And uh, he, he starts talking about the region itself. So I think it's one that's going to be enlightening for people like the Australia episode. And I think those are awesome. And hope that we continue to find those blind spots in the future as we do these, too. All right. Well, let's get into it. So we are here with Francisco Terrazas uh, from Paranubes. And Francisco, so one thing, I think one of the first things I noticed about Paranubes, and I'm looking at this little label on this uh, sample right here. But the first thing I noticed on the label is this like beautiful little illustration on the bottle. You've got these kind of like idyllic, lush valley in the mountains peeking through the clouds. Um, and I think it's the kind of thing I saw with the expectation of like, this has to be like an idealized mm-hmm. version of what this place actually looks like. Like it looks almost too good to be true. And then I went on the Paranubes website and the first thing that greets you on there is this photograph of what looks like the exact same location. And I'm like, oh my God, this looks as beautiful as the label led me to believe. And then at the bottom, I notice in tiny little letters, photo by Francisco Terrazas. So first of all, welcome to the show. But second, do you have like a photography background? Um, or are, no, it's you have so that funny. Skill? It's, it's such a beautiful photo. <laughs> it's so funny you say that. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, I've worked with the people that I work with on the rum for about six, almost six years now. Mm-hmm. And I've taken countless photos and most of them get thrown out in favor of some <laughs> of the more professional stuff that we have. But the one photo that is like my lasting legacy and imprint <laughs> on, on, on the company is the landing page for Paranubis, which 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 has also translated into the label. So I'm so proud that like if there's one photo that I'm gonna have that, that of mine is gonna have an impact, it's the one that like is the is the 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 non-face face of the brand, if you will. So yeah, thank you. It, it, but yeah, it really is it, it really is the best kind of uh, uh, translation of what the visual impact is of driving down into Rio Tuerto, which is part of a, a larger village called Wautla. And it's just, it really is that impactful. It's like, it, it was such a great translation of what the, the, the sensation is and what the, mm. what the, what the visualization is of actually being there. It was really, really well done. So we're really, really excited about it. Even three, even three years down the road. There's always that weird thing with photos where you take a photo and if you've been there, you're like, this looks good, but it still doesn't quite capture, you know, how breathtaking this is in person. So I know it must be even better uh, in person. Sometimes you just get lucky, Will. Sometimes you just... You get the right place at the right time, right, Francisco? Yeah, at right. the right do time, it. man. Like even <laughs> even the little wisp of smoke coming out of out yeah. of the trapiche, yeah. the distillery, you know, is like <laughs> in that photo, which you can't even believe, and it like looks like clouds, but it's actually it's actually we use a little two stroke engine for the mill, oh, um, and that's okay. actually just that's actually just the little the little putt putt engine of the of the of the mill crushing the cane, which is pretty cool, and that even I made it onto the label, it blew my mind. <laughs> So, but before we get into Paranubes, uh, I know it's not the only thing you work on. You're also mm-hmm. national brand ma- uh, manager for Mezcal Vago. And so I wanted to kind of start with just how did you get involved in the spirits industry in the first place? Give us kind of your, your journey into this world. 
Yeah, totally. And uh, before I forget, thank you very much at the intro, by the way. It's about as good as you can pronounce my last name if you can't roll your R's. So so very okay. well done. Yeah. You, you know, I always like <laughs> I, I I have a weird or your your last name isn't weird. I have a weird last name that, that most people don't know how to pronounce. And so I try to do that, but at the same time, rolling my R's, it's like I can do it thirty percent of the time. And so I was like, you know what, I'll just go for not doing it and get as close as I can get. I'll be in the ballpark. I think I think he'll be okay with it. Man, I feel like it's kind of like cilantro, right? Like you either like it or you don't. You can roll your R's or you can't. I think it's genetic or something. But nice. So I don't hold it against people, but you did about as well as you can otherwise. So thank you for that. But to your, to your point, to your question, yeah, man, I've been working in Mexican distillates or not working in, but focusing on in my professional life for probably about 10 years now. Um, well, I started working in the bar industry longer than that, but really as, as a career and as a profession and, you know, taking it seriously around 2011 when I moved around, when I moved to Austin, Texas and um, started working in like a really, you know, a well-respected restaurant craft cocktail bar. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was a well-respected craft cocktail program as part of a really respected restaurant in the city. Okay. And then from that, I, uh, I got to know a gentleman and my, now my good friend, Bobby Hugel down in Houston, Texas, who had just opened up a very mezcal focused program in Houston called the pastry war. If that name doesn't make sense to you, Google it. It's actually a really okay. interesting part of Mexican history uh, mm-hmm. that involves the French and this and this very short-lived, very minor, as minor as a war can be, but mm-hmm. a minor war. So that's where I really dove into to to focusing on Mexico and the distillates coming out of that area. And that's how I got to know the folks at Mezcal Vago. Um, I actually got to know my boss, Judah Cooper, who co-founded the brand Vago with, uh, with his father-in-law, Acalino. Garcia Lopez and his, and his friend Dylan Sloan, the three of them started Vago in 2012. I actually met Judah on his very first trip to the U.S. He was living in Mexico at the time to sell Vago, right? So he was he was passing through Texas with his brand new distributor. He was kind of getting into Sherry. It was a Spanish restaurant. We had a kick-ass oh, Sherry program. Okay. Cool. Very cool. Um, so, we, so we hung out, talked about Sherry all afternoon. He talked to me about his father-in-law's Mezcal. Um, that's how we first started to bond. And then once I moved to Houston, that was actually the, one of the first accounts and the largest account for Vago for a very long time. So that's how I got to work on Vago. Right. Yeah. And then I started working for Vago as their national, uh, quote unquote, you know, brand ambassador in 2015, October 2015, took a flight down to Oaxaca. Judah literally just threw me to the wolves. His wife is from Oaxaca. Right. He, he, his mm-hmm. father, his father-in-law is Acalino. So he married Acalino's daughter. So his family came down to visit. They loaded up in the truck, threw me in the truck, drove to Candelaria Yegale on their way to the coast of Oaxaca, basically just kicked me out of the truck and didn't even stop moving. And then just left me in Yegale while they kept going to the beach to hang out for two weeks and just left me in Yegale for two weeks with Acalino, just learning about Mezcal making mezcal so that was Amazing. my first like on the ground introduction to to mexican distillate production right yeah and then so that was 2015 and then about two years later we really started honing in the idea of producing a rum from mexico judo was on his way back from candelaria Yegale to oaxaca city had seen uh, as i refer to like this mexican rasta bum on the side of the road with like just dreadlocks flip-flops, uh, a gas can under his arm, hitchhiking for a ride back to the city. 
And normally in Southern Oaxaca, if you see somebody with like a gas can under their arm, it's either gas or mezcal, right? Mm -hmm. But Judah picked this guy up because Judah himself being a surf bum in his younger years, definitely identified with the guy. And underneath his arm was this gas can full of rum or or aguadiente, which is what he called it. And Judah asked him where he got it. And it was in this village of Huatla de Jimenez which was really odd because it was completely on the other side of the state about a, a, a about an eight to nine hour drive from where he, from where they were. Oh, wow. And it was actually rum rather than mezcal. And that's kind of where we got the idea to start Baranubis because Judah and I both share a love of kind of terroir. I, I talked about Sherry earlier, right. And, and wines and spirits that are driven by a sense of place, right? As much as that word terroir is overused, right. but really, really focusing on spirits and things of that nature on alcoholic beverages that show some sense of place. Yeah. I mean, even when I was working that bar program, my first introduction to that was like uh, European eau de vies and fruit brandies that are mm. unaged and really show the essence of the raw material, right? That led me to to agave spirits. And then from that led me to cane uh, cane distillates, agricole, clarin, et cetera. Mm. So that's really how we started forming the idea for Paranubis. And talking about Paranubis a little bit, the name means, is it for the clouds, in the clouds? <laughs> the literal translation, I guess, would be for the clouds. And I'm kind of glad you asked that because it is a it's a made up word. Essentially, we're really working towards something that really captured the essence of where we're producing in, yeah. in the high Sierra Mazateca mm-hmm. in northern Oaxaca in, in what they call one of the cloud forests of, of Mexico. But at the same time, we knew we had something unique. And we, you know, to I think our credit to a certain extent, hopefully not patting ourselves on the back too much. But we weren't the first Mexican rum, but we were very cognizant of the fact that This was going to be, it's still not a big deal, but it's going to be a quote unquote thing, right? So we Mm. wanted to kind of get out ahead of it. And we were trying to formulate something that was honestly easy, easy to, for uh, copywriting purposes, excuse me, um, right. was and one of the Google. reasons that we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it was one of the reasons, exactly, man, the SEO was, <laughs> one of the reason, right. <laughs> was one of the reasons that we really wanted to come up with something that was complete, that was unique, right? We talked about that. That was yeah, unique uh-huh. and that was unique and that we could easily copyright and just kind of maintain our own identity without somebody really kind of jumping onto that. So we yeah. kind of just made up this word that is Baranubes, which literally means for the clouds, right? If you're right. taking the literal translation, but we really wanted the word. It's a great amalgamation of two ideas. And that's that we're doing something to represent a place for that particular place. Mm. Um, and that place being the Masateca, the, the, the Sierra Masateca, which is actually right. the mountain range, which is named after the indigenous group there, the Masatecos. So um, it's a completely different cultural group, language group, everything from Southern Oaxaca, where we're producing mezcal, is completely mm-hmm. different. So it is its own identity. So we wanted to to kind of create the notion that we're doing it for that place to represent that place. And then Nubis being clouds, uh, you, you, you know, Nubis hearkening back to the cloud forests mm-hmm. of Oaxaca, which is where, which is what that region is, is also kind of known as. Right. Um, so that's where that name's come, that name comes from is Spada Nubis. And you, you mentioned talking already about the terroir and how special it is. Can you talk a little bit more about what you think the terroir translates into in, in the qualities and uh, and what it imparts to the rum? Yeah, man, absolutely. So um, without knowing the 
exact kind of quote unquote scientific analysis um, because we have actually done things like yeast analysis Mm -hmm. at the Mezcal Palenques and things like that, which we have Mm -hmm. not yet done at Baranubis. We would love to do that at some point, but you know, it's not necessarily the cheapest in the cheapest thing to spend your money on, so to speak. But I really think that, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the the ambient fermentation that Jose Luis, our the producer that we work with, right. um, implements is, is one of the biggest impacting uh, variables on what that end what that final profile is, right? Yeah. And yeah. because he's using that type of fermentation, it's so it, it, it's so dictated by the environment around him. So that is one of the reasons that we really focus on that kind of terroir concept, right? That sense of place, and then secondarily. Also is the, I hope, what what can be considered kind of minimal adulteration that we do to the spirit Mm. in order to get it from literally from the ground into the bottle, right? Mm -hmm. We're not adding any water pre or post distillation. It is literally just cane juice, fermentation, distillation, and bottling. And that's it. Um, We're really trying to transmit what they are tasting and drinking at the point of origin, mm-hmm. we, we, we changed the proof a little bit and we can talk about that in a moment about why we kind of took that strategy. But other than that, it's literally just the exact same process that Jose Luis has been using for essentially his entire life. And the, the, the process that was, that was kind of handed down to him from his father and his grandfather. So if I, if, if I talk about generational knowledge and things like that, the, everybody listening has to remember that, I, you know, I'm, we're coming from a Mezcal background. We, we, yeah. we were working in a Mezcal brand mm-hmm. first and take that same philosophy into this cane spirit, right? Yeah. So that's why I focus a lot or think in my own mind a lot about kind of that multi-generational knowledge being passed down from grandfather to father to son, right? And that's kind of the same ethos that we took into Paranube. So we really, really wanted to adulterate it as little as we possibly could to get it into that model. Because looking into that, uh, looking at that label, right? We talked about the label and just yeah, how yeah, yeah. it just literally just like pulls you in, right? Yeah, like yeah. that's what we wanted, not just from a visual standpoint, but also the from a profile standpoint. That. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. We really wanted you to be transported to Rio Tuerto, where the little village where Jose Luis is producing. And I definitely, we, uh, we will, uh, will get into the fermentation and, and uh, those aspects of production later because they're really fascinating. I've heard you mm-hmm. talk about them before and uh, some really uh, interesting things uh, that, that happen there. Before we get into that, I want to touch on something. We, we kind of go back and forth between talking about rum and uh, aguardiente. And I mm-hmm. think one of the first things you notice on the label, going back to the label again, is you see the word rum and then you also see aguardiente de caña. If you're in Mexico, is Aguardiente or Aguardiente de Caña, is that what any cane juice distillate is going to be referred to throughout Mexico? And is there any association locally with that being connected to rum at all? Or are they viewed as kind of two distinctly different things? And if you ask someone for rum, they're they're most likely not going to point you to Aguardiente. What does that look like there? Um, I think it kind of depends on where you are, right? Okay. And mm-hmm. I think that is something that I, I'm so glad you asked that because I think that's something that is really unrealized by the consumer yeah. is the difficulty in accurately representing a culture, which again, Mezcal, that's what we're trying. That's what yep. we've tried to do. We tried to do this with rum as well. Mm-hmm. But I think to places like Agricole, like, like uh, Haiti, mm-hmm. I think to places like Martinique with Agricole, et cetera, 
where we're trying to be true to the originating culture, the producing culture, but also make it understandable for the consumer. Right. So um, I I watched a video the other day where somebody was lining up a few Mexican rums. Honestly, Uh, it was great to see that somebody was focusing their YouTube tasting on, on, on Mexican rum. Super cool. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he was really, he kind of honed in a little bit on the charanda, for example, where Mm -hmm. it was labeled as a rum, it was labeled as a charanda, which, and he was like, I don't think they quite knew how to market this. It's like, well, yeah, they probably didn't because it's a very difficult thing because in, in, in in Mexico, they cut it, or at least in, in Northern Oaxaca, where we're producing, they call it aguardiente, right? But the consumer, a lot of times, especially in the Latin American cons- uh, community, they hear aguardiente, and you're probably thinking something from Central or South America that uh-huh. is heavily dosed with sugar, that yep. uh, proof down to like 35% ABV, and flavored with anise or some other spice. Right? It's more of a li- it's more of a liqueur than right. it is an actual spirit. So that is one of the reasons that we were a little bit hesitant that we, uh, but that's why we ended up putting rum on the bottle was because we want the consumer to understand that it's a cane distillate. Right. But right. we also were very, very deliberate in putting aguardiente in the bottle because that's what Jose Luis, that's what the, they call it in that region. And we yep. didn't want to cover that up at all. And we really wanted that to be encapsulated in kind of the experience and, and, and the end product. So uh, we, we, we put both on the label and that's actually what I spent a decent amount of my time explaining about the product is that it is a rum, but they call it aguardiente. You know, sometimes depending on where you are in Mexico and which community you're at, you know, sometimes you might even find aguardiente actually being a, an agave distillate. Aguardiente yeah. is really anything for like kind of it's it's uh, the closest I could equate it to a moonshine. Actually, it's probably yeah. the closest parallel mm-hmm. that I would draw is the term moonshine, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, it's usually just thought of or or used to connotate some kind of like backyard distillation process yeah. or, or something mm-hmm. like that, kind of rougher around the edges distillate um but in that particular region it is a cane spirit because the agave they grow don't produce mezcal they can maybe produce some pulque but they Mm -hmm. can't generate enough sugar to actually produce mezcal so if you're talking about aguadiente and distilled spirit in that particular area it's cane spirit yeah it's so it's so tough and i'm glad that you brought up the challenges of of that because i think it, it totally makes sense that you want to be, to, to accurately represent this product after having just talked about how tied to the place, to the producer, to everything, you don't want to just call it something that nobody there calls it, right? But then at the same time, you want to be able to sell it in markets that you're taking it to. You want people to be able to under, understand it. And then you put the word rum on there. And now you're kind of stepping into all the difficulties that the the rum category has as well so it's almost like fighting two battles uh because we talk all the time on here about you know misconceptions about rum and and things like that and so it's really fascinating what having put rum on the bottle as well what sort of challenges does that open the door to you now and i, I imagine it might be kind of hard placing paranubes in stores and things like that i know yeah. it's actually really interesting because you referred to charanda and I have a liquor store here in Nashville. There's a bottle of Charanda from a producer, Mitchell Khan, and it is in the rum section. They also have Paranubes, and it's right by the Mezcal. <laughs> and, and, you know, they both say rum, but one says Charanda and rum, and one says Aguardiente de Caña and rum. Mm-hmm. So, so is, is that kind of the constant battle you're having to fight to communicate the understanding? What has that been like? I'm finding that that is a 
I didn't know that until recently that that was a battle that we've had to fight, honestly. And mm-hmm. I, you're you're probably the third person in the last two or three months I've heard mention that they actually place it with the agave distillate section, right? Um, as far as Patanubis is concerned, right. for whatever reason. And I think there's two things. I think it's just general misunderstanding. And then also on social media recently, I, I was... Um, Watching people, I, I had seen somebody posting about a Mexican whiskey um, that is uh, that is that is on the market that is relatively new, and some of the people in this agave spirits group were commenting on the fact that a lot of people in the whiskey groups mm-hmm. just inherently were saying that it tasted like tequila, which seems to be a little bit of a cultural bias to a certain extent, right. um, and mm. just automatically associating it right. with that particular profile, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that is part of the challenge and I don't think it's anything deliberate, but it is something that is, you know, has to do with a little bit of, I don't want to call it necessarily racism because I don't think it's not, I, 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 it's nothing that deliberate and nothing that substantial, right? Yeah. Nothing that, that pejorative, but at the same time, I think it really does exist. And I've heard that as well. There is some cultural bias in there. Right. Yeah. It's from Mexico. Put it with the, the, the agave spirits. Right. And even, even when I'm tasting with people it's like, oh yeah, I get a little bit of this, of the smoke and this and that. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, that's cool. I understand. (laughs) But you know, I mean, Maybe because we're firing the stills, you know, it's a direct fire still and maybe, but at this and the fermentation tanks are pretty close to the still. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's where you might be getting some Mm. of that smoke profile. But ultimately, I think it's a little bit of just thinking that it's a Mexican spirit. It's an aguardiente, right? It's like some kind of other Mexican moonshine, quote unquote. So you're automatically associating it with that mezcal profile. Um, So, yeah, it is a little bit of a challenge to actually break those break those associations and get people to think about it in the right context both mentally and sensorily right like like on your palate yeah. right and then also get people to actually place it properly market it properly and know how to talk about it mm-hmm. um disassociating it from from uh from agave in general and you know again i haven't really been in the market for the last year to really to to, to see shelves etc right but it's been a little bit um, more difficult to do that lately yeah, virtually, you know, we're we're I think we're we're making a little bit of headway, you know, not to get too too off into the into the reads a little bit, but you know, we are submitting I just submitted a, a rum, a Mexican rum seminar for Tales of the Cocktail where we're gonna oh, invite cool. the chat. Yeah, we're we're I invited the uh the importer, my friend William Scanlon of of a charanda from Michoacan, mm-hmm. um a, one of our uh, another Oaxacan rum producer. Somebody who wrote a uh, re- recently wrote a book on Mexican rum, on the history of Mexican rum in the Yucatan. So hopefully, just to give people a little bit more kind of rounded picture and pre- and and present the idea that you know I use the hashtag Mexican rum is a thing, and right. you know really present the idea that <laughs> like it is it. its own thing. It, yeah, it has it, a heritage. It's very complex. It's very yeah. diverse. Yeah. It's hard to wrap your arms around, but it it's there. It exists if you want to jump into that pool, so to speak. Are you finding that other producers who would kind of be under that umbrella of Mexican rum, are, are they eager to kind of collaborate and and exchange ideas and, and try to represent the, the category on the same page? Or is it kind of a challenge getting everyone to to understand each other? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've um, interacted with a few different brands. I'm very fortunate to have a very good friend in the industry, um, Alessandro Gonzalez from Mezcal Tospa. 
who also produces um, a really wonderful uh, Oaxacan rum from a different part of Oaxaca. Again, going back to culture, you know, completely different cultural group, speak a different language. It's not even the same language family mm-hmm. where he's producing his rum. Um, and Oaxaca's but a pretty Mezcal. big area, right? Yeah, yeah, right. It, ge- I mean, geographically, it's not that big, huh. but okay. but it's actually what I the way I describe it to people is like if you take I'm from I'm from Southern Arizona, so if you take the borderlands in general mm. and add essentially the Rocky Mountains in the middle of it, right. And then you squeeze that down into one single state. That's what Oaxaca is. You basically have all the different ecosystems of Mexico condensed into one One single state in Oaxaca. Hmm. And because it's so mountainous, that leads to a lot of kind of inherent cultural, um, cultural diversity because there's a lot of geographic isolation historically. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. So people isolated by mountains and things like that. So it leads mm-hmm. to a lot of different, very diverse cultural groups. So that's one of the reasons that there's over 20 different languages spoken in Oaxaca, for example. Um, most of them are related to one particular language group. But up in the north, what we're producing, it's actually not related to that particular language group, which I find very interesting. But anyways, to, back to your question, Alessandro is a really good friend of mine, and we try to collaborate a lot. I've known the importer of the Charanda for a long time from my experience working at the Mezcal bar, because he started out bringing in Mezcals from, from Oaxaca. And, you know, at the same time, there's a couple other brands who I've presented with before, but we don't necessarily coordinate that much on our messaging, which I think might be something that I really, that was part of the reason that I wanted to create a seminar around it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, rising tide, right. Let's all close. Right. So I really wanted to have us all coordinate our efforts, but you know, on a day to day, I think we're all kind of doing our own thing. Could we maybe have like a daily zoom call together or anything like that? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I also, presented a seminar about uh, certification of agave spirits. And one of the points I made that was kind of a a quote unquote pro for certifying your spirits is because you have the marketing dollars and the marketing efforts of the the certifying association, the Consejo Regulador de Mezcal, right? The Mm -hmm. CRM. Mm-hmm. Who markets quote unquote, who markets capital M mezcal right? Mm-hmm. So you have the benefit of that marketing effort, which Mexican rum doesn't have right now. And I don't want to say that I think you know a a, a certification process is the right answer or anything like that. That's definitely our, our denomination of origin is the right answer. You know, there's plenty to say about the pros and cons about that. But in some coordinated way, I think it would really I think it would really benefit the category writ large to, to actually right. you know con- condense our efforts and really present Mexican rum as a thing, you know? There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the, the the GI thing and, and your comments there are really interesting too. Uh, that We could spend another hour just talking about that, I think. But what I want to do is, is shift a little bit to Paranubis and the production process for that. And you mentioned Jose Luis, who is the primary person in his farm is where Paranubis is distilled and, and created and cultivated. Interested to know... Uh, you told the story of how you, you kind of met and how this started, but what was the beginning of that partnership like? Was it a little bit of like, hey, this is great stuff, and just can you give us more? Was there a little bit more of like, how do we find out if this is the right producer for us, and a little bit of a vetting process there? And you know, what did he need to know from you guys? How did that all begin? I'm glad you asked that. I mean, I really only told kind of the first half of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where, where Judah met this guy, he had rum, it was from this particular place. 
the second half of that story is I was living in Houston at the time. Um, I had not, I, I had moved to Oaxaca a little bit thereafter, but I wasn't there yet. If I recall, Judah was still spending a lot of time there. So he actually, um, you know, the guy told him it was from Wautla, which is a relatively famous town in Oaxaca for a couple of different reasons. But one of the big reasons actually is because of a, a, a religious movement around psilocybin and mushrooms uh, in the oh, 60s wow. and 70s. <laughs> there was this, 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 Oaxaca, this Mazatec shaman there named Maria Sabina, who's very huh. famous in the culture. And in the 60s and 70s, you had a lot of like, even like very well-known like Jim Morrison, et cetera. Yeah. You know, traveling to uh, traveling to Wautla to go visit Maria Sabina, eat some mushrooms, and have this very intense, you know, experience, right? right? So that's why Wautla is a well-known village. So you know, we started traveling in that area and spent a few weeks just kind of driving through the mountains. So Wautla is actually a village that is right up near the ridge line, around between seven thousand eight thousand feet, right, where we're Mm -hmm. producing the rum. And you can kind of get a feeling for it on the label. It feels like you're looking down on something, right? Yeah. Because that picture mm-hmm. was like taken closer up to the to the ridges. And mm-hmm. there's there's so many little river canyons in this mountain range because the mountains are very karstic, so they're very soft limestone. So the 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 water system really has a tendency to to erode these narrow these narrow river channels everywhere in the mountain system. Mm-hmm. So there's all these little pockets of like hidden villages, right? So we spent time just traveling down these little canyons and visiting each little village. And, you know, it's a lot like mezcal production in the South. You know, somebody 60%, 70% of the people have their little trapiche where they're right. grinding cane. And usually it's for production of piloncillo or, or what they call panela, which is the raw you know, just boiled down cane juice mm-hmm. until it hardens and solidifies into a brick of sugar, essentially unprocessed raw sugar. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what most people are grinding for. But you also, you know, some people actually have put stills in there and produce aguardiente. So you're driving down these canyons and just like every two or three minutes, you'll hear the little putt putt of the two stroke engine just grinding the cane. So you just go knock on a door and you'll, you know, see if they're producing aguardiente or something like that. So we spent a few weeks just trying, you know, visiting different people and just kind of trying to see, Oh, Oh yeah. I see some smoke coming. Are they grinding cane? Okay, cool. Let's go see if they're distilling or whatever. Um, and, and just trying different uh, at our office in Oaxaca, we have a collection of like 30, 40 different aguardientes from that particular region. And we just tasted through some and we tasted one that we just really kind of saw the, the diamond that needed to be polished a little bit. Right. And so that happened to be Jose Luis's, we approached him and he is one of the just most, I don't know, man, he's very akin to um, uh, uh, Acalino in this fashion, who, uh, who was one of the original producers for Mezcal Vago in that he's just so incredibly, he's got such a wide angle lens and is so confident and humble at the same time. Mm. Um, you know, he knows what he's doing. He is very excited about the idea and has sees the potential for what this particular thing could be yeah. is very apt to allow us to slightly, I mentioned kind of messing with the proof earlier, right? Right. Um, he was very, uh, he was very apt to allow us to modify that slightly and understood why we wanted to do that. Okay. And anytime we want to kind of experiment with anything, he's more, he gets excited and feeds off of our excitement, which is really not necessarily the most common thing, 
Um, you, you might find producers who are flexible and, and, and are amenable to those kind of things, but it's not necessarily the, it's not necessarily that common that you find people who get as excited as you are. And he's one of those guys, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, even after we shipped our first shipment to the U S I visited him and he had, he had vinyl sticker Parnubes all over his truck. You know, like, That's really cool. literally like just awesome. so embraces the brand and the project of what we're trying to do. So I think we just got really lucky. And in these mm. towns they are so isolated that they're very self-reliant and, you know, if there's community projects and things like that, he's one of the voices that really organizes those projects. He okay. really is kind of one of the, one of the, uh, town I don't know. Like yeah, a figurehead town of the community. Leader, figurehead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He really is one of the figureheads. Of, of his particular community. And I think that goes back to the fact that the village, his name is Jose Luis Carrera and the village he actually lives in is Rio Tuerto de Carrera. So, you know, uh, his, yeah, his grandfather really actually ties. helped founded that yeah. town. And if you're looking down from the ridges, you see all these little isolated pockets of houses and each one of those little isolated pockets is a village, but really what it is is an extended family that is just kind of taken up on that particular wow. hilltop. So yeah. that's why he's so ingrained into that community. And we just got really, really lucky in working with him. I can't say enough about this guy. He's just absolutely incredible. He produces this really incredible Aguardiente. And like I said, it was our particular favorite. We kind of saw the potential there, just needed a little bit of polishing, and he was more than happy to help us with that. You, you mentioned his excitement, uh, kind of matching your excitement. Is part of that part of that stem from the idea of other people finally getting to experience this thing that he spent his life making, um, like getting it out to people who haven't experienced it before? Do you think it comes from that? I think it's a combination of things. I think he's. I think he just. You know, everybody in that part of the world just works so friggin' hard, man. And I mm. think it's it, it it's 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 a combination of a lot a lot of layers to why that particular why they need to work that hard just to really exist so to speak sure. and you know mm-hmm. if we want to have a, a round two of this podcast i'm happy to talk about that because i got plenty <laughs> of thoughts but you know i think that's a big part of it is because he works so hard you know he's got a legacy quote unquote in that in that particular town because of the fact that his grandfather was one of the kind of the founders of that particular mm-hmm. small village that local village um, I think I think a big part of it also is that he is because of his particular history with that location in that particular spot. Mm-hmm. I think he feels very tied to that land. And honestly, you know, this is something we don't necessarily talk about all the time. But if the opportunity comes up, I think it, it kind of lends a gravity and context to what Paranubis is and why I love it so much is because he had he was two weeks away from giving up on that particular town. I mean, his his wow. one of his daughters and his wife were already living in Oaxaca City. They okay. owned a little cafe and kind of convenience store, a sandwich shop shop slash convenience store, which is kind of a very common business model in, in Oaxaca okay. for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, you know, he had historically just been a farmer growing cane and growing coffee, but it really wasn't producing. And he was really about to kind of give up and move to Oaxaca. He told us he was two weeks away from moving to Oaxaca City wow. until we came knocking on his door. And now his daughter and his wife have actually both moved back to Rio Tuerto and help him just kind of run the homestead because he has kind of a, I guess you'd call it a ranch and uh, kind of just help him. His get his daughter Gabby is really instrumental for us in if we have logistical things that need to be modified or whatever, or just mm-hmm. we need somebody on the ground 
to just kind of help direct things. She's absolutely vital to that effort, sends us pictures all the time to post on social media, et cetera. So his family has really become very involved in the process. And I think he just, I think that's one of the reasons he's so passionate and gets so excited is because just to the brand and the idea and the concept mm-hmm. of Paranubis as a thing, I think he feels very committed to. And I think that's where a lot of the excitement comes from. And yeah, I mean, these people are just, they they have a sense of of appreciation for for what comes their way and i think that comes out of the fact that they have to work so hard mm. and it's and and just kind of your day to day there is such a struggle that i think i don't know i think something that he didn't necessarily have to adapt to and just something that he was doing has now provided this kind of leg up for not just Jose Luis's family, but the village of Rio Tuerto as well. And we can talk about that a little bit later. You know, the price of cane has gone up. Other producers are able to charge more for their aguardiente, things like that. So I think those, I think all of those different reasons, you know, it's helped the community. It's given him a tie to the community. It's allowed him to stay where he grew up. And I think he just really enjoys kind of having this operation that he gets to that he gets to run on a day-to-day basis. He really seems to, having spent time with him, he really seems to enjoy checking the cane every morning, checking the stills, et cetera. And, and breaking, we, we separate things into very specific cuts off of the still. And he, you know, he loves getting into that and organizing that and making sure things are getting cut off the still properly, et cetera. I think he, I don't know. He just enjoys the work that he's doing right now. And I, I don't know, there's a lot of reasons that he's so into it, but we, whatever the real reason is that he, whether he has or hasn't told us, we're just lucky that he loves it so much uh, (laughs) because we're, he's, He's such a joy. So is to the work rum with. world. So is the rum world. Yeah. Consumers are happy too. And, and it seems like he's really adaptable to scale as well, which is one of the challenges. It seems like always when we talk about a you know a smaller batch producers and figuring out how to make this work on a scale that might be larger than what they did previously, but also not change the processes inherently that were involved in that. Was that something that was even a discussion as part of? Was he already producing enough volume for you, or when you had those discussions, was there any kind of thoughts around that as well and how that's being balanced? We scaled up slightly. I mean, not slightly. We scaled up significantly from a percentage standpoint. But in the in comparison to to other operations, we scaled up very, very minimally. Uh, we were producing. Jose Luis producing about a, when we met him was producing a thousand liters every couple weeks to a month, and we have doubled that essentially. So we're mm-hmm. still only producing maybe what that's like 50,000 liters a year, roughly, um, which is not a ton of, of volume, but he was very much, he was, I mean, he was absolutely adaptable to that particular process. You know, he's still only running one. He's, we're still only producing about 90 liters of rum or 180 liters of rum, excuse me, per day, essentially. And that's off of one 550 liter still, uh, excuse me, two, two 550 liter stills. So Mm -hmm. when we first met him, he had one 500, 50 liters still we put in a second one to where he can get off of that still he can get 90 liter off of each still he can get about 90 liters per day so um we doubled that so we're producing 100 liter 180 liters per day and that's not necessarily that saying that we're using all of those 180 liters but that's what comes off the still and then we break that down into 18 liter jugs and then we we use those different cuts to assemble the blend. But that is, you know, that, that that is how much he's doubled. It was a little bit of a shift. 
he had to adjust his uh, cane sourcing a little bit, okay. but it's still hyper local. When we started Paranubis, it was completely what yeah, I guess you would call estate grown cane. Right. It was all his land, but now it's about 50 50. Now we source about sure. half from his particular. His land outright, and then the right, other right. half we we source from the immediate area of right. you know either where Rio Tuerto is or perhaps like the next right. canyon over or something like that. But it's all very hyper local to where we're producing, right? Which is further helping out the entire community there, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we, we we've touched a little bit on production. I want to get into that more because there's some really interesting things going on. So already established, hundred percent fresh sugarcane juice. Uh, you just mentioned kind of the the sources of, of where that's grown and where it comes from. The fermentation process has a couple of elements that surprised me. And that, as you mentioned, that you kind of keyed in on that as being one of the defi- like defining parts of production that, that really gives Paranubes its character. Can, can you walk us through fermentation and, and feel free to highlight other production aspects as well? Yeah, totally. So it's a little bit difficult. And, and I apologize to, to everybody who's going to listen to this because visualization does help. So yeah. and there is a great picture of uh, one of the fermentation vats on the Paranubase website. If you go there, there's a page called Tech that really walks in depth through the process. And yeah, there's there's a great picture of Jose Luis checking one of the fermentation vats. So, you know, I mentioned that we added a second still, right? So um, let's just talk about one particular still. We'll call that a production line, right? So he's got okay. two production lines, essentially. Each still has two fermentation vats that feed it. There are about 550 uh, Cypress, Sabino, Cypress wood vats that he uses for fermentation. Two fermentation vats per still, right? Every morning we'll hand harvest the cane and we'll crush that cane. And it's literally, it's built into a hillside. So there's no pumping going on. It's all gravity fed, which is kind of cool. So he literally just hooks up a hose to the cane mill Mm -hmm. and that will feed the fresh juice directly and just dump it into the fermentation Mm vat. Yeah. So, um, you know, he'll fill those up and every morning he'll light the still. And uh, over the course of the day, he will distill, it's an, it's roughly an 1100 liter vat, 550 liter copper pot still, right? And he will distill half of one fermentation vat. And then the next morning, he will distill half of the other vat, okay? Meanwhile, the first vat is getting replenished with fresh cane juice. But you have to remember, he only distilled half yeah. of that fermentation mm-hmm. vat, right? So he's adding fresh juice on top of old juice. And every day he'll repeat that process. So every morning, one of the fermentation vats gets distilled by half. So Mm -hmm. that bottom half will actually sit for up to four months and just accumulate and uh, evolve over time. And it's really interesting because I've been there when he starts a brand new batch of completely new juice. I've been there halfway through. I've been there at the end of the four month cycle. And you can really, even in the raw material, you in, in the, what what we call the Most people know Uh that is a fermented pineapple Pineapple, beverage, but we usually, we use it in the context of really anything that's, that that's a fermented liquid, the the beer Um, kind of, yeah, the beer yeah. or the mash, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, so I've seen that tepache evolve where it's brand new and it's very lijero, um, very, very thin, uh, very, very, very thin in texture. Uh-huh. And then over time, you really see that become more viscous, mm-hmm. thicker, it, oily. In, in this picture on the site, it looks thick. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, and, and you can see it's like bubbling on top yep. and those bubbles really hold because there's more oil in the in, you know, there, there's more fat and oils from the corn, the lipids or the corn, excuse me, the cane that are mm-hmm. that are that are leaching that that's not leaching, but just, you know, end up in yeah. that pre- yeah. in that yep. batch. So over time, it really evolves and just becomes this very rich liquid. And it also gets a little bit more of a savory profile. It becomes a little bit more saline in quality. I also think the saline happens because we're very, very close to the coastal plains of Veracruz um, Uh, off to the northeast. And we could talk about that as well. But there's a few different reasons that I think it has that salinity to it. But one of those is because of that really long fermentation time. And then after four months, he will eventually toss that, toss out the uh, batch. He will distill it out and then let the fermentation tank soak for a couple of days, clean them out, and then start a brand new batch. So that fermentation process, I've, I, we, we've talked to a few producers in the area, and I don't think I've met anybody who completely distills on a 20, who, who distills all of their juice over a 24 to 48 hour period. Mm. Most people have that kind of rolling ferment, what we call a rolling fermentation technique. But Jose Luis is the only person who we've met who lets it go for that long of an extended period. And in and, and speaking with him, he said that that was just the profile, uh, you know, that gave the aguardiente the profile and he just thinks it produces better aguardiente. He thinks it just produces a better product because of that richness and that body that it gets, that viscosity on the palate. That's yeah. the way that he thinks that it should be made. Um, and there's other people who are producing different rums, et cetera, but they're, you know, I think they're noticeably different, noticeably thinner and lighter in the palate for sure. Mm. You mentioned the Francisco, the the last portion that gets done out of each batch that's been sitting for four months. I, I'm curious. With that part of it or that particular distillation, is there a real difference there in terms of what comes out of the distillate and then you utilize that in a like a blend manner for for all of the paranubis? Or is it really kind of similar in terms of overall palate and, and, and flavor to the other batches that are distilled? Um, I, it, it, it varies. It's a yes and no because of the fact that we um, that was one of the, the things that we asked Jose Luis to modify slightly was actually how he's cutting. And I guess the best word would be organizing the cuts Mm -hmm. off of the still because historically he had been just blending every single day's batch into three different parts. So the head cut of every single day would go into one container. The heart cut, if you want to call it that, of every single day would go into another container and the tail cut would go into a third container, right? So it was just adding to each one. Yeah. Yeah. There was only three containers, you know, head, heart, tails, right. Right. Every single day that he would just dump together. And when we started working with him, we asked him to give us a little bit more control over that or not give us, but just to control it a little bit more himself. So what he actually does is he will separate every day's distillation by day. And then he will actually separate that into, I, I think I mentioned it, 18 liter glass garrafones. Mm-hmm. So where does every still is giving you 90 liters per day. So every still has five glass garrafones per day. And then about every two weeks or so, we will go up there and taste through those different jugs, blend those together in order to produce a consistent profile. Because mm-hmm. we, that, you know, we knew that there was going to be a huge amount of variability from batch to batch. And right. in Mezcal, that's something that we've historically embraced. Right. But with the rum, one of our goals in producing this rum, and that's why we proofed it at 54%, you know, that's uh, that's one of the reasons we do it in liters, et cetera. 
was because we really wanted to gear this a little bit more towards cocktail programs instead of people sipping it neat. So we knew that that the consistency had to be there. Exactly. So that was one of the reasons. So we, it does evolve and change over time, but because of the way that Jose Luis has, has, has uh, broken down the cuts of the day's distillation that gives us a little bit more control over how we can modify our blend to compensate for that evolution of the, of the fermentation. Right. And, you know, you could say, well, why don't you just ferment it for less? Well, because if we didn't have that fermentation time, you wouldn't have quite the same body richness and the complexity that you get in Paranubis. Yeah. I'm really glad you went over that. Actually, I had that question marked for later in terms of whether you were moving for consistency or just letting, like you said, like a mezcal tradition of just batches vary, because that's really interesting to me. And both are equally good in the sense of what you're trying to accomplish. I sometimes I love the idea of, you know, the mezcal different batches, or sometimes you find that in Haitian Clarins, you get that kind of specific batch. And then at the same time, to your point about having the consistency and how important that can be for a another side of the usage of a rum and expectations is really important too. I, there was one other thing that I caught that I noted on the, the website and some of the information we were looking up, which I thought was interesting. The mesquite that gets added to the starters, I would love for you to talk about a little bit more. And also that it was interesting to me that when you couldn't get, it said that Jose Luis couldn't get some mesquite for starting sometimes, he would just like substitute with some pineapple rind and just throw that in instead, which I thought was really interesting. And I, I hadn't really thought about that as a, like a direct replacement for mesquite for that purpose. Anyways, yeah, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about what that was and, and how that fills in with, with part of the process. Yeah, you know, and, and my answers might not completely fill in yeah. the, the the holes for some people, yeah. but you have to understand that that's part of the nature of working with some of these producers is because, you know, and that's one, that was a big learning curve for me with Mezcal as well, because bartenders come down, why did you do this? Why do you do this? Why do you do this? And sometimes yeah. the answer is just because it is, well, that's how you do it. That's the way it's done. Because they don't think, you know, it's relatively new in the the history of of these products that people are coming down and asking these pretty nuanced, more scientific than practical questions, right? Geeky Um, questions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You bring the geeky questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the the mesquite wood, and I do want to mention one thing. I think I, I, I mentioned the term proofing down. When I say proofing down, I don't mean bringing down to proof with water. I mean, you know, right. blending the different cuts together so that we get 54%. Right. Because, the proof you varies know, throughout the distillation. So yeah, you're left, exactly. You're left so with distillates of varying proofs, and then you're you're mixing and matching those to get the proof you want. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Most people listening to this podcast probably understand that, but for the layman. Um, but as far as, the, as far as the mesquite wood goes, that was something that was really interesting. He calls it mesquite, but I'm pretty sure that it is a wood that in southern Oaxaca we call tepewaje, which is actually... Um, a tree that that you can process in such a way, you basically just make a tea or a tincture out of it, essentially, that you can actually use that tincture and it will cause an enzymatic reaction that will help kickstart fermentation. 
So every time, you know, we mentioned at the end of four months, he throws it away because the profile gets a little bit too earthy and too funky and he has to start over, right? So at the end of that four months, he'll dump that out and start with completely fresh cane juice. Well, because he is in the cloud forest, it gets a little bit cool at night. So he has to help, he has to kind of help stabilize the fermentation a little bit. And Mm -hmm. what he'll do is use this tree bark, this mesquite bark Mm -hmm. that he calls it. It's not what, you know, I grew up knowing as mesquite. It's a different tree, but he'll just take the tree bark out and the way he measures it out is literally just two handfuls is what he says. He'll throw two handfuls of this wood and throw it in a big pot with water, boil it for about 20, 30 minutes. And then he'll take this big pot of of mesquite tea, essentially, uh-huh. and just dump that into the fermentation tank along with the wood. Yeah. And he will he will add the juice to that, which helps kind of get uh, uh which helps kickstart the fermentation and helps stabilize it when it's fresh, when it's right. fresh fermentation and the yeast hasn't had quite had a chance to really populate as it does over time, right? Yeah. One of the things that I found really interesting, and this goes back to kind of him adjusting how he cuts, et cetera, was when we were, I'm so, it was just, uh, we were so lucky we caught this in, in hindsight, was right when we were about to bottle, the rum that we were picking up was very cloudy and had a really, really sharp and really astringent profile to mm. it. And we asked him what had changed. And he's like, oh, well, it's a brand new batch. And it turns out that when you start a brand new fresh batch, the profile that 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 mesquite bark actually has too big of an impact right. on the flavor profile. Mm-hmm. And what also happens because it's a wood, you actually get wood alcohol, which then turns into furfural in your distillate, right? So we were getting, you know, we submit every batch for analysis before we bottle it. And we were getting really high for like too high of a furfural count. And we didn't know what was going on. And it turns out, I mean, my hunch, we haven't done the specific analysis. But I mean, just logic tells us that it's because the furfural is coming from the the high content of that mesquite bark. right? Right. So for the first three or four days. Jose Luis will actually separate that out, redistill it and use that to sell to his neighbors and things like that in order to because the profile and the, again, the furfural count just mm-hmm. doesn't we can't use it for Paranubes. And that was mm-hmm. a really interesting learning experience for us that that mesquite bark actually has that big of an impact on the flavor profile. And that was, you know, that that just speaks to Jose Luis's flexibility and not thinking that we're crazy in telling him that we can't, you know, you you have to find something else to do with the mm-hmm. first three or four days of your fresh batches. And the, the profile was different. It was very cloudy and uh, it was you know, like really turbid, you know, it, it was yeah. just very funky, weird and very, very sharp in profile. And he, uh, you know, he explained to us why that was. He's like, okay, no, that totally makes sense. Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll figure out something else to do with it. That's a great example of working together and figuring out what you need from him. I I really. Yeah. And that was only because he that was only the only reason we were able to isolate that particular variable was because he was willing to separate things out so specifically mm-hmm. through the day's distillation. Good point, yeah. Um, but one thing, another detail with the fermentation that I'm not sure we covered, it's all just wild yeast that's there kind of in the air. You're not adding any yeast or anything like that, right? 
Yeah, exactly. One last thing I want to mention is that, and one of the reasons we were able to find out about that Tepewaje bark over time was because we could actually see the distillate getting cleaner over time. The first couple of days were really cloudy. Mm-hmm. And because he had separated them for us, we were actually able to see it clear out a little mm. bit over time, which was fascinating. But to your question, yeah, as far as the fermentation and additives and things like that, you know, the only additive is that Tepewaje bark mm-hmm. or that mesquite bark. Um, yeah. Other than that, it's all ambient yeast fermentation yep. that we're utilizing. We're not cultivating any yeast. We're not pitching any yeast. You know, we're not, or excuse me, we're not, we're not cultivating yeast and we're not using any commercial yeast either. Right. It's all just ambient. What is, what is in the, that particular environment. And I think that's one of the cool things that I mentioned my buddy Alessandro before their process is out of the rums that I've tried and I've seen coming out of Oaxaca. I would say that theirs is probably as far as what's commercially available is probably the most similar to what we're doing at Paranubis. Okay. But it's a very different profile to what, and actually I think he uses a little bit of peel and CO in his fermentation, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on that though. I don't want to, I don't want to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> but anyways, it's a very, it's a vastly different profile to what, to what we're producing at Paranubis. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because of that yeast profile. And that is, you know, for, for. That goes back to the, the terroir. Cons- yeah. For the consumer, that's going to be very closely related to the mezcal. But it's not really infl- – it's not like they were like, oh, yeah, this is the way mezcal producers do it. Let's do it that way. That's just the way that they do it is because, okay. you know, these guys don't have – definitely have not had the – even the network, even the ability to get yeast commercially from mm-hmm. someplace and then bring – buy that, transport it to their facility and yeah. add it to their fermentation, right? And um, they haven't really needed to cultivate yeast because they weren't producing commercially. So there hasn't really been a need to produce a consistent profile before, which would be one of the reasons that I would imagine that they don't need to pit, that they haven't needed to cultivate and pitch yeast was because they could, you know, they're just selling it to their neighbors or whatever. So they didn't need, you know, they could just ferment whatever they had without having to add any yeast to it. It's going to happen. You know, why get in the way? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so from what I understand, it, it sounds like there are kind of hundreds, maybe, of these small trapiches uh, making a guardiente throughout the area, throughout the country. Uh, you talked about kind of having your little sample collection at headquarters of samples from different producers. Is your goal at any point to you know highlight other producers or anything like that, or are there other producers out there that you think really make something that's on par with the the quality you've discovered with Jose Luis? To the second half of your question, yeah, absolutely. I think there are people definitely making rum of that similar quality. Profile is going to be different for sure. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but from but from a, a metric of quality, yeah, absolutely. I would argue that everybody else, you know, not everybody else, but I would argue that a lot of those samples at the office are of the of equal quality, mm-hmm. but not necessarily what I think would be the most interesting or stand out in the rum market. You know, I think a lot of them might be a little bit too light and a little bit too green. I think maybe a little that some of them might be are wonderful, wonderful distillates, but they might be too similar almost to something Mm. that you would get from, from the Caribbean or something like that, that are just a little bit too dry and too green, something that's a little bit too akin to like a, an agricole or something like Mm -hmm. that. And doesn't differentiate itself enough. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we worked with Jose Luis, right? Is because I mentioned that how he he lets his fermentation go longer. And I think that's where a lot of that richness comes from. Yeah. That seems to kind of almost meld together something like a Jamaican rum with an agricole to a certain extent, because you have that funky, earthy, rotting fruit richness. Mm-hmm that you get from Jamaican rums and mm-hmm. copper pot distillation versus something that you and that vegetal 
cane quality that you get from something like an agricole or a claret. That being said, you know, there's other, I mentioned, I just mentioned Alessandro as well, you know, right? Like he's doing, you know, I've seen other producers who are actually adding piloncillo or sugar to their ferment, which is going to add something different to the flavor profile from just using cane juice, right? We talked about Charanda as well. That particular facility, they produce a few different rums. Um, the Uruapan Charanda that they're doing in the blue bottle, yep. um, from my understanding, is a blend of molasses distilled on stainless column yep. with cane juice distilled on copper pot. And that's fascinating. You're going to get a, a very different blend. profile. Yeah, yeah you're going to get a very, very different profile. They also do do a, a an expression that is a little bit closer to Paranubes in that it's, yeah, Cane juice, copper pot distillation. But I think that that technique of blending is very, very interesting. I've even, you know, I'm from the borderlands. I'm from Tucson. I have a really good friend of mine who works in coffee and mezcal in Tucson. He owns a shop and they've taken adventures through Sonora. And there's a village there that they haven't found somebody distilling yet. But there's actually this random village in Sonora where they have a history. It's known for producing and growing cane, and let alone so you would Veracruz. Think you would find some 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 more cane distillate. There. Totally, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, or a place like Veracruz, which is where if you you know prior to five years ago, if you had seen a commercial Mexican rum, it was probably something that was produced in a little bit more of a modernized, let's say, fashion mm-hmm. than what we're doing. But it was probably out of a out of a sugar mill and out of a, a you know it was probably from a molasses base that was sourced from a mill in Veracruz because that's where most of the mills are either on the Gulf Coast or on the Pacific Coast down closer to the towards the coast of Oaxaca or the coast of Chiapas. Uh, there's a couple of sugar mill, but predominantly in Veracruz and the Yucatan that area. There's a history of cane production. I just mentioned I'm reading a book about the history of cane uh, in, what, in the what Yucatan. What is the name of that book, by the way? Uh, the name of the book is Sugarcane and Rum. Okay, um, awesome. Yeah, it's, I'm check let me out. grab it. It's actually right in front of me. I'm going to yeah. grab it. But it's Sugarcane and Rum, The Bittersweet History of Labor and Life on the Yucatan Peninsula. Oh, that sounds, it's written that sounds right by, up my alley. Um, yeah, it's written by John R. August and Jennifer P. Matthews. I invited Jennifer is the person that I invited to be on the panel with me. Mm-hmm. And she just has a history of anthropological study and, and sociological study in Mexico. And I believe particularly the Yucatan, because it looked okay. like most of her work was focusing on the Maya. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and it's a super I mean, I had just started getting into it, but it's less than 150 pages. So it's a quick read. But yeah, in that part of Mexico. There is a very, you know, and there's a very rich history, um, not uh, not to talk about my buddy again, but he's a really good friend of mine, but it's really interesting. Alessandro, he produces mezcal, but the way that their mezcal brand was started was because they didn't have a history of mezcal in their village. They had a history of cane production. Oh, wow. Hmm. And yeah, so there was Aguadiente producers there before there was even a mezcal brand hmm. over time. Just kind of, you know, the mezcal production had been filtered out and and gave way to cane. And he and his cousin decided to learn about mezcal and bring that back to their village. And now they've actually gone back to producing an aguardiente, which is really cool. Yeah. But there's pocket, you know, and I just found it uh, doing my research. I found some other rum from Chiapas as well, which is pretty cool. Um, there's a spirit called Bosch, which is P-O-X is how you spell it. Okay. But it's actually a blend of cane and corn alcohol blended together um if i recall correctly uh, from coming out of chiapas as well so yeah man there's a wealth of places where i think there's quality cane distillate of various techniques 
being produced in different parts of Mexico. And it's just a matter of people taking the time to find them. I mean, right now, the, the momentum is in Oaxaca. Even in the last two months, I think I've seen three new cane distillates coming uh, that are coming to market from Oaxaca itself. So that's definitely where the where the where the spotlight is right now. Yeah. But I think people just need to spend some time looking around because Mexico is a big place. Yeah. It sounds like we're just kind of scratching the surface. Yeah, it's exciting as a rum lover. And we'll, we have to talk, talk about this, Will and I, that rum lovers and hobbyists are explorers in some ways because rum is such a global spirit. And we love the diversity of rum and what it brings and offers. And it sounds exciting to me. And I'm so excited to try some of that different stuff coming out of Mexico Absolutely. at some point as well. I mean, I, I feel like it's, I mean, uh, maybe Southeast Asia or something like that. But I feel like it's one of the few kind of unexplored territories as far as cane production is really, as far as cane distillate production is really concerned. So in talking about that and seeing how the rum community has responded to Paranubes and and some of the other uh, Mexican spirits that are cane spirits, I'm curious if you all have taken up a strategy in terms of marketing and how you're pushing into the community at large and the spirits community. Have you all pushed the Paranubas into the Mezcal or tequila market at all and tried to make inroads that way? Or has it really just been more marketed towards the the rum communities? I know we talked about how it gets placed together already, unfortunately, in some kind of circumstances. But has there been any strategy of where you're, you're saying to a lot of Mezcal and tequila lovers, hey, look, this is Mexican rum that's really great? Or has really been more of like a strategy of saying, hey, look, rum community, Mexico makes great rum. Yeah, it's kind of funny you say that because I know I was just pooping on the fact that it that it gets associated with the rums <laughs> and the tequilas. But ultimately, those were the first people to embrace it. Huh. You know, it's not necessarily an unfortunate. It, it, it's, it's a little bit of a hurdle for people to understand what the product yeah. is. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not buying it, right? So, you know, if you need to put it on the tequila, whatever, as long as people are buying it, you know, that's what we're trying to do at the end of the sure. day, right? It's more money in Jose Luis's pocket at the right. end of the day. Part, but, part um, of me also wondered if, if the the shelving with Mezcals, if, if part of that could come from people knowing the connection to Vago. I, I don't know if that has any influence on it. I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it, you know. But I think at the end of the day, I think it has been a benefit to the brand to be associated with 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 uh, agave distillates because those were really the, the the first adopters, if you will. Those were the people that were really passionate. And even now, it's only in I would I would argue that it's only in the last the rums the the brand is about three years old now. It's only in the last year that we've really seen the cane community really embrace it. Uh, for the first couple of years. It was really just the agave heads that were really loving it and mm. digging it, talking about it, pushing it in front of people. You know, it still hasn't really, I've even seen a lot of well known rum personalities um, that are out there talking about rum that everybody knows about. I haven't really seen them get really excited about Mexican rum, honestly. And even, mm. the, even at the account level, even cane bars, you know, it still seems to be a little bit of an afterthought to a certain extent. Mm. And, I, and that's why I keep talking about Mexican rum. It's, it's a thing, you guys, it's not it's just, thing, yeah. it, uh, Mexico is a huge country, you know, For, yeah. It's historically been in like the top five of right. top five countries in as far as acreage acreage that's under cane, you know. So mm-hmm. it's it, it produces a lot of cane. There's there's stuff being made there, and hopefully we'll round that that will will turn that corner a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, we wouldn't be where we are yeah. if it weren't for the people that are into the mezcal mm-hmm. and into into tequila 
and into agave distillates that were like, oh, wait, what is this? It's not mezcal. Oh, that, you know, and then they just get even more excited because yeah. mezcal inherently comes with a love for Mexico, whether you wanted it to or not. Mezcal and tequila are going to make you fall in love with that country. Yeah. And if you love that country, you're going to be excited about anything that's coming Absolutely. out of that yeah. country. Yeah. And, and, you know, I talk about this a lot is that Mexico is such a diverse country that the distillates are really a cultural exploration of this place because, mm. you know, with agave, mm-hmm. we're talking about Michoacan, we're talking about Jalisco, we're talking yeah. about Sonora, we're talking about yeah. Oaxaca. And even just in Oaxaca, I'm talking about how there's like a completely different cultural mm-hmm. group. Yep from the Zapotec in the South where a lot of mezcal is produced. And I think that's one of the reasons, one of the things that people love agave spirits. And now it's just one more reason and one more thing that can get people excited. Right. And then alternatively, also, I want to mention that per ounce, Paranubes, you know, I'm going to talk in bar speak here, but your pour cost, you're talking about a spirit that's a little bit less than a dollar an ounce, Mm. which makes it a lot friendlier than some of the more than some of the, than well crafted mezcal. You can get mezcal that's less than a dollar an ounce, but it's not necessarily what I would want to sip on. Right? It's expensive here. In yeah, Miami. yeah. But Anubis produced. We really wanted to put something out there for you know. I think of Canaan Table down in New Orleans, who uh, my yeah. friend Nick Dietrich helped start that place, but he's no longer there. He moved back home. But that kind of place that is very much associated with rum and tiki cocktails, etc. What do they call proto tiki or whatever? You know. But anyways, <laughs> you know. Wherever we are they, now, yeah. They yeah they love agave at the same time and they've always had vago at their back bar and they've tried to incorporate it in their program but it just doesn't make sense from a financial standpoint and we really wanted to do something for accounts like that and accounts that have mezcal programs and stuff like that but wanted to add something to their cocktail program that was a new different exciting and a little bit more friendly from a financial standpoint Mm -hmm. to incorporate into their programs and still be able to get excited and still talk about mexico but that they didn't have to like, oh man, I can't believe I'm pouring two ounces of this yeah, mezcal into this right. cocktail, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, and that was one of the big reasons that we wanted to start Patanubes. So, you know, I, again, I just, I can't, I don't know. I just can't thank those guys enough. Those yeah. kind of those kind of accounts enough, and those that that mentality, the people from that mentality who love Mexico, love mezcal, and now have embraced the rum so much. Yeah, that's that's great. And uh, you know, Mexico, as you said, it's a, it's a big country. So there's there's just a lot there, and yeah. we hope that this conversation and this podcast is doing a little part to continue this conversation in the rum community now too. I, I also I, I want to revisit what you said about you. You mentioned that it's kind of been within the last year or so that you feel like Paranubes has gotten more uh, attention from the Mm -hmm. cane spirits community. And I think, A, I wanted to ask, what do you think has led to that? And and B, I was kind of remembering where was where like where were the first couple of places that I remembered hearing about Paranubes? And uh, one of them that sticks out in my mind was seeing it in Shannon Mustafer's cocktail book, Tiki. She has recipes that specifically mention Paranubes rum. Uh, And I remember seeing it in there and be like, oh, yeah, like I'd heard of it. And I was like, I need need to look in more on uh, on Paranubes. Yeah, my dream would be that she hears this because I've been meaning to reach out to her just to say thank you because I know that (laughs) she has mentioned the brand a few times in some of her recipes. So, uh, you know, that was that was really key. We were really lucky. We had, you know, I mentioned I mentioned my friend Bobby, who I who I worked for uh, for a couple of years down in Houston. He wrote a piece in general. He actually came down and visited us. He wrote a piece for Imbibe on on Mexican mm-hmm. rum. They, the Mexican rum uh, Imbibe has done, I think, a couple pieces on Mexican rum. One of them focusing on Charanda. Um, so has Punch. 
you know, I think those were kind of not the, the watershed moment, but I think they definitely, definitely helped, you know, the dam hasn't broken yet, but I think those, those pieces were kind of pulling bricks out of the dam, so to speak, so that the dam can break hopefully soon. Uh, But we'll see what happens. Those were pretty big. We were really lucky in that of the few award, uh, the few like spirits competitions we've entered have been very, very well received. I, you know, I have to give a shout out to our guys in Europe because the Europe rum market, the Europe, European rum community seems a little bit geared a little bit differently than it is here in the United States Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. for a variety of reasons, which is a whole other podcast unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we, we've got, for we've whatever, got ideas for like two or three more podcast episodes <laughs> after this. <laughs> but they have just completely embraced Spot Anubis as well. That was a big thing. I think the European market and our agave heads here in the States, I think those gave us enough kind of organic content mm-hmm. to share on social mm-hmm. media in order yeah. to be able to justify calling, like saying like, look, this is happening. You guys need to be paying attention to, to this. Uh, I have to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Maggie as well, who has been, who has let me kind of bend her ear on our general production and our aging, pro- our aging program, et cetera, which is just in its infancy. Um, but We're she's talk talked about, about that, it. Yeah. All. She's, she's talked about Potanubis a lot as well. When you say Maggie, you mean Maggie Campbell, Maggie Campbell. I'm so yes. sorry. Yeah. Yes. Maggie Campbell. We figured. Um, but just, yeah. yeah <laughs> who uh, I originally met in Houston because again, through Bobby, who's been my home. He actually, Bobby actually uh, did our wedding ceremony. So that's why I talk about him so much. He's a great nice, friend nice. of mine. I absolutely love that guy. But he introduced me to Maggie and Maggie kind of helped me guide, help guide me through that and having her talk about it and get excited about it and kind of tell people it's just, it was very, very organic. We've done all of our marketing ourselves, which is really, really hard, but I think has given the brand a sense of honesty that people really embrace, which I think also has been very, very key. You know, we talked about really just transporting people to the Trapiche and to the, yeah. to the Masatec mountains. And I think that same kind of idea of just bringing people along with us, we've been really upfront about how we're producing our age, you know, experimenting with our aging program, which is just now getting released our first release barely, you know, I think it's fun for people to watch a completely, a, not completely new because as i mentioned there's been cane being produced in mexico for a very long time but watching for what them for for what to them is a completely new project mm-hmm. and get to come along that journey with them right and i think that is something that people really really key in on none of us even ourselves really know what we're going to get at the end of the day we're figuring it out as we go along and god bless Jose Luis for the times that we've had to kind of correct, you know, error correct Mm -hmm. here and there and being flexible with us. But I think that's a big part of it also is that people just get to feel like they're coming along on the journey with us. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned the, the the infancy of aging. You have announced or, you know, seen pictures of the, the first Añejo release. In, yes. in my mind, one of the first questions that occurred to me was, I, I'm assuming, but this may just be my own ignorance, I'm assuming that Aguardiente is not often aged in Mexico. And so, so how did you kind of approach doing that? What were you hoping to end up with or what were you hoping to avoid in aging Paranubes for the first time? Um, we were trying to avoid, uh, something that tasted like crap. That was basically, (laughs) that was, that was it. I was like, let's just not screw this up. You know, other than that, let's just kind of screw around and see what we can do. So, 
our first release um, that we just did was so we have another very good friend. I love these opportunities. I love these podcasts because they give me opportunities to talk about people that I absolutely adore. One of those people is David Searle, who has been a mentor of mine and just a luminary in the agave spirits category. He owns a, a tequila brand, a mezcal brand, uh, a restaurant called Tequilas in Philadelphia. If you're listening in Philly, go check them out. Go go support them. They're a really wonderful restaurant. But he also imports. So I have to give you the full scope here. Yeah, We've talked about Mezcal Vago. We started Pata Nubes. They are now separate projects. Okay, so Pata Nubes is now kind of... Vago was very lucky in that we partnered with Samson and Surrey, which is a craft portfolio brand about three, almost three years ago now. And that's been a rat, but that kind of orphaned Pata Nubes to a certain extent. So we were still producing it, importing it ourselves. We didn't have a partner... And this is kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit. But when you're working with distributors, it's kind of hard to to get track. (laughs) When you're working with distributors, it's a little bit difficult if you're one brand, because, you know, why are we going to give you time to to give you a sales rep to write around with whatever? They want like a portfolio kind of. Yeah, we didn't yeah. have anybody, any anything to give us help get us some traction. And David was like, hey, you know, let's work together. We reached out to David and we're like, you seem like a perfect partner for this. Let's do this. So he started importing Patanubas for us when the brands separated. And I have just loved David's tequila and mezcal programs. So, you know, I knew that David used virgin oak for his aging. So I knew that he had to do something with those barrels after that first fill. So, you know, it was in Jalisco. It was relatively easy to get those barrels down. Sourcing barrels, which I found out and I was living in Oaxaca at the time, we're kind of working on this program, can be difficult to source barrels, use barrels particularly, and know what you're getting because you mm. have to go through an intermediary. And if you're not buying in volume, it's very difficult to get a, you know, get a foot in the door. So that to makes speak. sense. Yeah. So, you know, we trusted David, we knew David, we knew his program and we were like, Hey man, you know, do you have any barrels that we can, I would never call David. Hey man, but, um, uh, you know, I was <laughs> like, you know, Mr. Suro, do you have any, do you have any barrels that we can maybe get from you? He's like, yeah, you know, we just emptied out this extra Nejo French Oak. We we just emptied out some Añejo uh, American oak barrels. Here's what we have. So we picked up uh, one French oak and five, one, two, three, four, um, four American oak barrels. Okay. So our first release was a French oak barrel that had been used to store extra Añejo tequila uh, for uh, one fill. And then four American oak barrels that had also been used for one fill of tequila as well. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of our, and then we just bought some new American oak barrels that we're using right now that we're laying down. So those will be coming along in, in, in a little bit of time where we're actually, I have samples on the way from Oaxaca right now. They're in the mail, hopefully. And we'll see how those are coming along. But that's kind of the extent of our, of our aging program. 20, 20, 20 uh, American oak barrels that we bought. And then the five, the five barrels that we bought from David, uh, we just sent the French oak barrel to Europe and the Ameri- the American oak barrel. So what we did was we took the French oak barrel, did that as a single barrel release. We took the, what we thought was the best American oak barrel, did that as a single barrel release. And the other three were actually bottling this week as a larger American oak release to the United States. So the, mm-hmm. the, the two best barrels, for single barrel releases, one went to Europe and one went to the U.S. And those should be hitting in Illinois, New York, Texas, uh, and California, and a couple other markets. Hopefully this week or next week. So that's the extent of our of our aging program. And then also 
we have a little single varietal experiment that we're doing with some buddies oh, um, okay. at a stereo. Mm. I mean, we didn't even talk about that. The, yeah, because you're, you're using four varietals, right? And it's yeah. kind of a mixture. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Badanubas is four different cane varietals. Uh-huh. About 80% of it is kind of what we call caña criollo. And then the other 20% mm-hmm. are made up of caña morada or caña negra, they also call it. Mm-hmm. Caña duro or caña amarillo. amarillo and caña dulce but we actually jose luis actually made a 100 percent caña morada varietal uh expression rather and uh that single expression is actually on its way or that single varietal expression is on its way to our buddies at a stereo in chicago illinois because those guys have been just huge supporters of vago they've been huge supporters of paranubes they're one of my absolute favorite bars in the entire world. They're absolutely amazing. And uh, so, yeah, they bought the entire, I think it was uh, about, um, I want to say 20 liters of Caña Morada. So okay. it's a single varietal expression that is on its way to to Chicago. What, what was that experience for you like of being able to taste just one varietal by itself? Do you notice a pronounced difference in it? Yeah, big time, big time. Hmm. Um, very, very, yeah, 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 yeah. I was very, we were very surprised that Jose Luis decided, we didn't even ask him to. He was just like, oh yeah, by the way, I emptied <laughs> I out my tanks. Out. Yeah, I, I was starting a new batch and I decided to do all caña morada. Because you have to remember, right, the fermentation goes for four months. So it's not yeah. like you can just decide to do a batch of, <laughs> you know, halfway through and just uh-huh. decide to do a batch of one cane variety because there's four different varieties in that tank already. Yeah. So he was like, hey, I started a new batch. I decided that I'm going to experiment with caña morada. Uh, I'll send it up to you guys. And we tried it. And man, it was effing incredible. It was so right. It it doesn't have the richness, but Mm -hmm. what it lacks in richness, because that's the 80%, as I mentioned, was Caña Criollo. That's where the yield comes from. Mm -hmm. It's got the highest, the sugar, actual sugar content. And that's where the body and the richness that kind of forms that, that coats your palate. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of it comes from, not just the fermentation time, but also that cane variety. So it's much lighter on the palate, but what it lacks in body, it makes up for in spice, man. It is just like this cinnamon bomb. I don't know if you guys remember those little atomic fireball candies, but it's like, it's like throwing one of those in your mouth, dude. It's like cinnamon syrup on your palate. It is so great. It is. uh, I'm so, I'm so happy with how it turned out. I can see how excited you are. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I really want to try that now because I have a distinct childhood memory tied to atomic fireballs because whenever my family would take a road trip my dad would always go into a gas station and buy you know like five or six little atomic fireballs and he'd keep them in the little compartment by the door and just eat them while he was driving uh and i could always smell it so i I, i've got to try that now and see if it conjures up those childhood road trip memories for me (laughs) i'm very hesitant about talking about specific tasting notes because it's so subjective but i sent some samples out and there was one person in particular that i sent a sample out that i was like really curious to hear their opinion and that was the first thing they said was like without me saying anything i was like oh, what did you think it's like man cinnamon and i was like all right cool well i'm not crazy so yeah it's just like <laughs> this awesome. really wonderful just like little sweet cinnamon bomb yeah. on your palate that is going to be really really awesome and, and uh yeah so that was a fun experiment you know the yield isn't there so it's not something that really makes sense to do on a day okay. in day out basis yeah. it was really just and the reason I said I was excited or surprised by it was because Jose Luis was like, yeah, the yield isn't great when we do single varietal stuff and it just doesn't taste as good. So we were really kind of surprised that he decided to do that. And it just turned out uh, absolutely incredible. Jose Luis sounds like he has the entrepreneurial spirit for sure. He's he's definitely like, hey, what do we do next? Or how do we get this going? That's that's awesome. hundred, Which makes it really fun because I think it pushes us to kind of like 
And we've been having this conversation internally just to kind of like leave a little ellipsis at the end of the sentence, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he pushes us to think about things like innovation and stuff a little bit because he's always just like, like you said, you know, hey, what's what's next? What can we do? You know, what do you, you know, great. what do you guys feel yeah. like working on? Yeah. So um, hopefully we'll see some new projects come out of that in the next year or two. So that should be a lot of fun. Very cool. Well, between the you know new aged releases, a uh, single varietal that'll be out yeah. there. You said that bar is in Chicago. Yeah, a stereo, a stereo. stereo. It's a really okay. you know it, it's it's I don't know they're they're a cocktail program, they're a hangout bar, they're just a lot of fun, man. They focus particularly on cane and agave spirits, Got so it. it's a it's a rad program. Well, between all that stuff and the standard. Our new base offering, of course. Uh, I think there's a lot for rum fans to look forward to, and you know now we're hearing more and more about just a whole category of Mexican rum that is sitting there mm-hmm. unexplored by even most people who are into rum. So it's yeah. super exciting to me. Um, I'm really glad that that uh, you, you've taken the time to hang out with us and talk through all this because it's been great to to kind of put a bow on things. We always like to end our interviews with a little rapid fire segment uh, that is the brainchild of, of John Gullah, my co-host here. Uh, so if you're up for that, I'll have John tell you about it now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If I if I screw up, I know who to blame. So cool. <laughs> all right. It's tough to screw up. That's why I always though, mention <laughs> John's name. I'm deflecting responsibility. How many what's the record for how many questions you've gotten? That's actually that's a great question because I was yeah. I was I was editing our last episode and it was with Jay West, uh, who is a spirits critic. He goes by the username Take online. You may have seen his reviews before. But he was going through the rapid fire, and John was kind of taking a little long to get through a question, and Jay was like, go, go. And I could tell he was wanting to, <laughs> and I was like, We've never, yes. we haven't really kept track of who's gotten the most done, but we need we need a Rumcast leaderboard, and then we need to start introducing that so people can try to beat it. Yeah. You've raised we, we, a great a great question. Yeah, I agree. We will have that on the website soon. <laughs> yeah. We will make sure uh, to put that on there. We'll, we'll have a power ranking system. Um, <laughs> awesome. Well, I've got I'm, 60... I'm in the I'm in the frame of mind now, so let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got 60 seconds on the clock and go. All right, neat or on the rocks? Neat. Column, pot or blend? Pot. Aged or unaged rum? Unaged. Molasses or cane juice? Thank you. It's kind of a softball. <laughs> there's, uh, there's some easy ones in there. <laughs> tequila experts are often called tequileros and mezcal manufacturers are mezcaleros. Would you refer to a person making rum in Mexico as a cañalero? Aguardentiero is what Jose Luis Aguardentiero. calls himself. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this too, but tequila or mezcal? Oh, uh, <laughs> Paranubis literally means for the clouds, as we said. Are the clouds the true target consumers here, and we're just getting what's left? Just be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually produce a lot of rum, and then we just like shoot it into the air with squirt guns, <laughs> super soakers. Your favorite cocktail using Paranubis? Uh, specifically, ooh, damn, uh, daiquiri. No, 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 <laughs> Presidente, a Presidente. My friend okay. Terry made a Presidente, and it was incredible. All ooh. right. We love Mexican and Mexican-American cuisine. What Mexican foods are the perfect complement for Paranubis? Oh, man. Um, You know what? I'm going to say, like, pickled vegetables. Escabeche. Okay, ooh. gotcha. Other than Mexico, where does the best rum in the world come from? Uh, I don't know. I don't Follow know. your heart. Follow I'm your heart. Uh, I'm going to say Jamaica, man. Was the name Paranubis chosen because you knew it would unlock the ability to use the hashtag send noobs on Instagram? 
No, I actually hated that the hashtag when Jude it up, and now I absolutely love it. <laughs> All right. That's time. Uh, it, okay. <laughs> Enjoyed that very much. A worthy much, performance for sure. Yeah, I definitely got hung up on some. I know I'm not going to be very high up on the leaderboard now, but that's okay. It was fun. <laughs> oh, you know what? We're just starting the leaderboard now, and you're the first person to do it since then, so you are at the top of the leaderboard. There, so you, there go. you go. There we go. Cool. <laughs> Send me my trophy before anybody else gets on there. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, Francisco, before we go, I know we, we talked about some of the new stuff coming down the pike anything else you you want to add anything for people to check out uh, uh who are listening to this interview yeah if anybody from the sub, uh seminar selection committee at tales of the cocktail is listening pick the mexican, mexican rum, rum seminar that would yes. be rad pick all my seminars that i submitted uh that <laughs> would be sense. great that would be great but no thank you guys so much this is really really incredible um i i can't say enough you know not even just cane but just drink and pay pay a good price for Mexican uh, spirits in general, because I can't tell you guys enough. If you're, if you're drinking a good spirit and you're work and you're buying from a good brand, it really does make an impact at the ground level for a lot of these producers. So I can't say that enough. Um, that's been one of the biggest prides in, in, in my life is working with people who I know who I love and who I get to actually see that impact happen. And, you know, your, your consumer decisions, your, your purchasing decisions make, make a difference. So spend your dollars where, where they should be spent, I guess would be the, the, the one parting thought I have. Love it. Oh, and I, I want to pick your brain selfishly on one more thing uh, for myself, because my, my experience with, with Mezcal is limited, but I've always liked it whenever I've had it. And, and so I for the other rum fans out there like me who aren't as initiated in the world of Mezcal, what are your top recommendations for, for exploring it, getting started? I mean, Mezcal Vago, obviously. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, of course. Uh, is there a particular uh, you know, bottle but- you recommend? Um, well, yeah, I mean, there is there there's one that is particularly kind of ubiquitous for for Mezcal Vago, and it's kind of become the calling card for the brand. I think mm-hmm. you guys will find it interesting. It's it's the Elote is what we're really well known mm-hmm. for on the Vago front. And that is actually it's a it's an Espadine Mezcal, which at mm-hmm. first glance is like, OK, most Mezcals are Espadine, whatever. But in the second distillation, um, Acolino, who unfortunately we, we, we lost last year in, the, in, a, in an accident, unfortunately, he developed this. Well, developed this kind of a family recipe of adding dried toasted corn to the still during the second distillation run, which is really just gives it this really beautiful softness and this creaminess on the palate. It's just really, really beautiful, beautiful mezcal. And it just gives it this nuttiness on the nose. It gives it that, that, that silky texture on the palate, gives it a hint of sweetness and now his son. So if you see a bottle that says by Acolino, snatch that up because those are essentially collector's items at this point. Mm. Um, and then uh, it, the new ones are actually hijos de Acolino because his sons, Temo and Mateo, are now carrying on that family legacy. Um, cool. The second one that I would recommend is the Madre Quiche from Amigdio Harkin. It is one of my favorite single varietal mezcals that we really that we really put out. And awesome. then um my my absolute best friend, my best mescalero friend, Tio Ray, who I mentioned earlier, I got to spend two weeks living with Acolino. Yeah. I also got to spend two weeks living with Tio Ray, who is the clay pop producer that we get to work with. And he's an absolute gem of a human being. He's this dude. And he just like he wears these pearl snap shirts and just like unbuttons them all the way down to his little belly. And he's got just like this power belly power that just belly. like, <laughs> yeah, just like, man, he like hand crushes all of his agave. And I just know that's where all that power is coming from. Yeah. Um, but he's just <laughs> such a great guy. And he makes really wonderful, wonderful 
clay pot uh, mezcal. So anything with a red label from Vago is really, really wonderful. He's in a little bit more tropical environment. And we were talking about fermentation earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's further west. So he gets a lot of moisture blowing in from the Pacific and the coastal mountains. And then it dumps in those mountains. And then the other producers we work with are in the Central Valley and the interior Sierra. So it's a lot more arid and more desert-like. Mm-hmm. So those mezcals are a little bit high-toned, like little really bright citrusy floral. Tio Reyes mezcals are a little bit more kind of bottom-loaded. So like savory, funky, chewy, leathery, but still sweet from the roasted agave, acidic and tart. And hand-crushed clay pot distillation. And he actually produces blends of different agave ensembles. So each re- each batch is really unique, which is pretty, pretty rad. And then one last one I'm going to shout out to because there are friends in Aguardiente and there are friends in Mezcal is Mezcal Tospa. Um, I touched on those guys earlier. It's a really, really cool project, man. They make beautiful Mezcal. Alessandro and his cousin Edgar, they came to the States to work, saved up a bunch of money. Alessandro went to business school. Edgar learned about distillation and they went back to Oaxaca and started this mezcal brand to kind of bring mezcal culture back to their village, which is super, super rad. And they're, uh, they're in a different part of Oaxaca from Vago and they're, uh, they're just super rad guys. So if you see Tospa, T O S B A, uh, snatch that stuff up as well. I I know I just hurt my wallet a little bit, uh, getting those (laughs) recommendations because now I have to have them, but, uh, yeah, I I appreciate it. And, uh, man, thanks again so much for, for taking the time to, to educate us on, on what you guys are doing. And, uh, can't wait to see what comes next. Man, totally my pleasure. Thank you guys so much. This was an absolute blast. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening, for tuning in for another episode of the Rumcast. If you want to learn more about Paranubes, uh, we have some links and information in the show notes to check it out. As we mentioned in the interview, they have a wonderful website that goes super in-depth in their production. I wish more brands do that. Other brands, if you're listening, get, get into the weeds. Go to the Paranubes website and just be like, how can we make our website more like this one? Right. Um, all of that said, though, as we said in the intro, we love questions, things to talk about, ideas for topics, people to interview. Uh, so if you have any of that feel free to send us an email host at rumcast.com that's host at rumcast.com or you can hit us up on multiple social media platforms which john will share with you now yeah so we're we're on instagram a rumcast and we're also on facebook a rumcast there you can find us on either one of those platforms we do utilize twitter a little bit but mostly just for posting our episodes so if you want to get a hold of us instagram and, and facebook is a great way to do that as well and and will i'm gonna i'm gonna step on what you said by saying also if this is not your first time making it to an end of a rumcast episode and you still haven't put out there hey this is a good podcast. We urge you to do that because we really yes. want every listener to help other listeners and other rum geeks in the world like us to find us. And that's one of the primary ways we can do that. So please stop what you're doing right now. Unless you're driving, you should keep driving. <laughs> but if you're not driving, stop what you're doing right now and uh, give us uh, some feedback on uh, your podcast app. Let us know uh, how you feel about the podcast and hit us up. So whether it's social media or email or that, we would love that. All right. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.